You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as a eel, Mr. Grinch. Today's guest on the podcast is Chris Wright. Chris is a professional mountain guide who splits his time between guiding, climbing, skiing, and doing badass first ascents. You know when you tell people you're a climber and they think you fly across the world to put on crampons and slog up big snowy mountains? Well, this guy actually does that. We talked a lot about the first ascent of Linksar, which is a 7,000 meter peak in Pakistan. Chris climbed Linksar this past summer along with Graham Zimmerman, Mark Ritchie, and Steve Swenson. I kept saying Swanson in the interview, but it is Swenson. Sorry, Steve. I'd love to have you on the show, and I promise to pronounce your name correctly. We talked about some of the history around Pakistan and why there's so much more to this type of climbing than just climbing. We talked about how Chris trained for the climb and why it took the team three days to get off the mountain after they summited. We talked about favorite post-expedition foods and why Chris is excited to go sport climbing this winter. And a lot more. I had a ton of fun talking to Chris, and I think you guys will like it even if you have no desire to go climb a 7,000-meter peak. There's still some great nuggets. Everything we talked about will be linked in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com, including Chris's website and a trip report for Linksar. And that's it. Please enjoy this conversation with Chris Wright. So a few weeks ago, I went to a presentation at uh, one of our local climbing shops here. And it was a presentation that you and Graham Zimmerman, your climbing partner Graham Zimmerman, had put on. <clears throat> you guys gave a slideshow and talked about your recent trip where you did this really awesome first ascent in Pakistan. How did this Linksar trip come together and how, how did that whole thing come about? Well, kind of before we got rolling, I was telling the story about how Graham and I started going climbing together, which was basically, um, so I think he moved to Bend, asked me if I knew anywhere, anyone who was renting a room, I was renting a room. So he moved in with me, I think in 20, I want to say 2014. Maybe it was 2015, I can't remember, but uh, he had a trip planned to go to Pakistan with Steve Swenson and uh, Scott Bennett, and they made the first ascent of a really cool rock tower called Changi Tower, and um, Scott and Graham made the second ascent of K6 West, I think, via New Route, and both of those peaks, I think you could say they were on the sort of south eastern edge of the kind of greater Characusa glacier area, which is a place where it's been easy to get permits in the last handful of years. And there's a lot of people who um, have been in there. Not that many people go into the Nangma Valley where they were, but both of those were sort of adjacent to the closed border region where it has been really difficult to go for a while. But from the top of Changi Tower, they looked across and saw this really beautiful, big kind of picturesque snow and ice and rock peak. And I remember I'm, Graham described it in the presentation. He said it was like 
if you're watching The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, it looks like the, the top of the mountain where the Grinch lives. <laughs> yeah. It really does. It's kind of this perfect triangular peak just sticking out. Yeah, and people have been trying it for, for a good handful of years now. Like there's been, a, there's been a bunch of attempts on it, but they'd all gone in from the west, um, from the Cherokee, because that was where you could get a permit to go in. And it's like it's a really handsome mountain from that side as well. But the line that kind of gets you high on the mountain terminates at the end of the this summit ridge and leaves you pretty far from the summit with this really jagged line of towers in between and even if you get to kind of the the ultimate tower it's like this kind of micro big wall at the like 6,800 meters that just looks like this really difficult to climb piece of stone. Mm. So folks had gotten like kind of close, but also we're still really far away going in from that side. But anyway, uh, so... Graham was like, whoa, what's that thing? I want to climb that. That looks cool. And Steve, being Steve Swenson, who has been, I want to say he's been everywhere, but especially in the Karakorum. And, and real been quick, everywhere. For, just context for listeners, who's Steve Swenson? So Steve Swenson is easily one of the most accomplished alpinists of his generation. And so Steve's 65. Um, he's from Seattle, and he's a retired civil engineer. And um, somehow he's just managed to combine this incredible alpine climbing career with a really successful home life, with a really successful business life and just sort of is this anomaly in the alpine climbing world which is you know really kind of littered with stories of you know heartbreak and divorce and you know guys who have only their climbing and live in a you know uh whatever they're just not these great stories of these whole lives uh, sure. necessarily and steve's been always been the counterpoint to that but somehow has remained on the cutting edge for a long time and i think you know, getting to know Steve, part of that is because he is like this infinitely reasonable person, but he's also an incredible project manager. And uh, on the first trip we did together, not even into the big mountains, I just saw like why Steve has gotten so much done. And that's uh, a whole nother story, which basically involves us trying to drive into the Canadian Rockies to get to a climb and him assigning me and uh, the other guy we were with to shovel like basically a like 50 meter section of snow drifted road while he used my avalanche saw to like cut down branches and pad the edges and he had like a rate at which we needed to shovel by and oh, you know check man. in on to make sure that this was going properly and I think this was motivated kind of by a guy in the parking lot telling us like no oh, it's a bad idea you shouldn't do that and I could just see the the like the Steve Swenson I'll do what the fuck I want kicking in and uh anyway we like shoveled got in did the climb and you know it's sort of a funny story but at the same time I know that Juan and I the other guy we um because we said as much to each other quietly as we shoveled like neither of us really believed that this was a good idea or that we were actually going to get to climb the climb that day yeah. but it was clear that Steve did Steve had the vision Steve had the metrics by which we would measure our success and 
you know, had clearly calculated, well, if we leave here and we go try to climb something else, the time spent, blah, 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 like, this is our best option. Let's try it. If it fails, so it goes and it succeeded. So mm. anyway, so, but Steve's done a ton of first ascents all over the world. He's climbed a lot in the Karakoram. He made the first ascent of the world's, at the time, second highest unclimbed peak in 2011, which he won the PLA door for. And he is just one of those guys that I grew up in alpine climbing kind of idolizing mm. and um you know being inspired by his like pictures from his expeditions when i was leaning against the counter at mountain supply yeah uh, flipping through magazines and um uh local climbing shop here in bend yeah and so so he and uh graham had been on this trip um they had gotten to be friends i think through either the seattle climbing community or the alpine club i'm not sure i can't remember the story there but um anyway steve had tried links are in 2001 had not gotten permission to go back there since and when they went in 2015 and graham saw this beautiful mountain and said i want to climb that steve said yeah, I already tried to climb that once. Mm. I want to climb it too. And I've been wanting to climb it for the last 14 years. Maybe we should try to get a permit again. Yeah. So cool. So they're climbing something way across the valley and they're just looking over at this amazing thing. Like, Hey, and Graham's thinking, Hey, what's that? I want to go climb that. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think it's, it's not that way across the valley. It's just like, like pretty much like right, right there. there. Okay. And so they got a, an up close view of it, which actually turned out to be incredibly useful because the perspective that they got from Changi tower is what in a lot of ways exposed the, um, the line of weakness that we would f eventually follow. Um, okay. but everybody knew about links are, I mean, it was, yeah. it was one of those kind of, I don't know if I can say open secret cause it definitely wasn't a secret, but it was like the, the phrase that always seems to get tossed around in alpine climbing is like the last great problem, last mm. great problem of the Himalaya, last great problem of the whatever. And that was definitely one of those last great problem type routes. Okay. And, and zooming out a little bit, because we, we, I mean, we talked on this a little bit, but just to make it really clear for listeners. So this is Northeast Pakistan mm -hmm. and you mentioned it being really close to the border, um, which would put it kind of in questionable territory. So can you kind of describe a little bit of the geology around it and, and where you guys were? Yeah. So basically when India was a British holding, basically what we think of as the entire, basically the entire South Asian subcontinent was India, including, you know, Bangladesh, including India, including Pakistan. And when partition happened, uh, the British had this really unenviable task of figuring out, well, how do we divide up the continent? And so the way that they did it was basically by assigning majority Hindu states to India and majority Muslim states to the new country that was going to be Pakistan. And um, once they got up into the mountains, they had the problem of what to do with Kashmir, which was a princely state run by a guy who was himself Hindu over a Muslim majority. And when Lord Mountbatten, who was the... Um, the viceroy of India was charged with doing this. He basically said, I don't want this job. It's impossible. There's no way this is going to go well. And the queen and the prime minister said like, 
yeah, I know it's an impossible job, but um, we're going to ask you to do it. And we're basically not going to let you say no. And so one of the deals that he kind of made was, okay, well, I'm going to do the best job I can, but there's going to be a few exceptions. And this was like a deal that was made with the Indian parliament and all the, the, the parties was basically, I'm going to get all of these states assigned to Pakistan or India, but you got to give me four that I might not get to go because they're all independent kingdoms and independent states under a government and they're not going to want to give up their power. Kashmir was one of those. So that's okay. the, sorry, that's the long way of coming around to the <laughs> fact that um, Kashmir was a problem, but there weren't that many people that lived there. Okay. And so the way it ended up was that they basically said, we're just going to draw the line here and we're going to have a referendum later uh, to let the Kashmiri people decide whether they want to be part of India or part of Pakistan because we basically can't get their ruler to like play ball right now. And all of Kashmir was Indian controlled at the time. And the Pakistanis took the northern part of it, which is Gilgit and the states of Gilgit and Baltistan, and occupied it. And the Indians were on the other side, occupying Kashmir proper up to basically like this spine of mountains, which is the Saltoro Ridge, which is the line of mountains on the other side of the valley from Linksar. Okay. And so then in 1984, the Siachen conflict began, and the Siachen is the largest non-polar glacier in the world, and it's basically like what drains the whole uh, eastern side of the Karakoram. And so its right-hand side, if you were looking on the map, is India. Its left edge is like K2, the Gasherbrum group, all those big mountains right there. And so the Indians would approach the line of control, basically like the disputed border from the east and the Pakistanis would approach it from the west and everything close to that uh, that border was basically just a closed conflict zone. Mm. Um, and so they uh, didn't want to issue climbing permits once that conflict started and the area was closed. Did you learn all of that just out of a desire to climb mountains? Um, I'm sitting here like, is this guy a history major? No, like a- you learn this stuff reading uh, <laughs> because you hang out with Steve Swenson. I swear, like that explanation I just gave is like the, yeah, you got a lot of it wrong, like kind of third grade explanation compared <laughs> to what Swenson would give you okay. because he has this encyclopedic knowledge of history and of the geopolitical context of this place. And um, it just sort of makes you feel like you need to kind of get a clue and so i've read a bunch of books about it okay cool but it's fascinating yeah it is it's yeah it's fascinating history Hmm. so uh, at the start of your presentation you kind of open things up by speaking about the criteria at which you kind of evaluate a a new objective a new expedition like is this going to be worth eight months of my life to go do this thing so graham sees this peak and steve's like yeah hey i've already tried it i'd love to do it again how does that get pitched to you? And maybe what is it about Linksar that excited you or kind of met those criteria? So I knew of Linksar. Like I said, everybody knew of it. Okay. There were teams that were trying to get permits to go there every year and teams that were attempting it, you know, for all the time that I've been kind of climbing this sort of thing. And so I'd seen pictures of it and I knew it was you know, incredibly pretty, one of the last unclimbed 7,000 meter peaks, um, not only in the Karakoram, but really in the world. Um, mm. And 
when Graham went on expedition in 2015, I couldn't go. I, I mean, I, I was already doing my thing. He was doing that thing. But we kind of said, like, oh, we should go do this sort of thing together. And like I said, we went climbing together in 2016. And we did a cool big new route in the St. Elias and kind of used that as like the on some level, like the test for do we work well in the mountains because we already knew we liked each other. Um, where is that? Uh, so that's in the Wrangell-St. Elias area. It's kind of like, uh, it's not quite southeast Alaska, but it's on the very kind of northern edge of what you might call southeast. Okay. And it's a range that's got quite a rich mountaineering history. It's where uh, Mount Logan is. Okay. Um, so the biggest peak in, in Canada, which is like a, I think it's 19,000 something. And there's a group called the University Range, which is, are mostly really pretty kind of 12 to 14,000 uh, foot peaks. And there was a peak called Salino Peak that had a really gorgeous 6,000 foot face on it, which had been tried a few times before, but nobody had really paid a lot of attention to it because that area has not uh, got the great rock and ice and snow climbing that the Alaska Range is famous for. Mm, But this peak looked like a real stunner. And um, when we asked Carlos Bueller, who is another kind of American climbing legend, um, about it, knowing he'd tried it before, he got really cagey, um, <laughs> and it was obvious that he thought this was worthwhile. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so we went and we gave it a shot. And I mean, the rock was utterly dismal. The seracs were big, and the snow was lousy. But uh, it was a great climb. I'll definitely never go back to that range again. But um, <laughs> but anyway, it worked. It worked. I so. love all that combination of words. That's pretty funny. So anyway, so we. Um, said, hey, we're, that, you know, that was 2016. We said we should go on a big trip. And um, I think Scott Bennett, uh, Graham's partner in 2015, was kind of moving away from this style of climbing. And I think, you know, Steve and Graham were really excited about doing another big mountain trip. And since Graham and I had been kind of pointing towards that, it was natural that they asked me if I wanted to come. And uh it was a bit of an up and down actually in that we originally wanted to go to Linksar and Steve showed us his pictures from 20, 2001 when he was there initially and I saw the pictures that they took in 2015 and was really excited but of course we didn't think we were going to get a permit for that so mm. we had actually kind of pointed a lot of our efforts towards something else in the western part of the range and we thought that was a sure bet but we probably wouldn't get Linksar because the whole political situation is really fluid there basically at the very end uh we found out you can have the the links are permit you mm. can't have that other one okay and so we got really excited and yeah. uh went to links are how, how far out in advance are you having to figure that out i mean during the presentation at some point you mentioned it's like an eight month planning pre- period for something like this yeah i mean it's crazy because you know, you, you point your energies towards it, right? And, you know, it's it's the better part of a year training cycle to, to really feel strong for one of these things. And obviously, you know, you've got to get the funding in place, which for us means a lot of grant funding, oh, okay. a lot of grant writing, a lot of like, yeah, just trying to get all of those ducks in a row. And then, of course, you, you know, setting up your schedule so that you can be obsessed with this thing for the next year and then take off three months to actually go do it. Mm. But, you know, the permit thing is is a wild card because you can apply for the permit now for next year, but the offices that 
field, that application are not very responsive and it's by design that they're opaque, that you'll never know if you don't get the permit, you know, which agency shut it down. Because I, if I understand the process properly, basically they're first going to give it to their national intelligence service, the ISI, who is going to sort of make sure you're not a spy or somebody and you're allowed to come to Pakistan, then they'll kick it over to the uh, military intelligence who will sort of look at exactly what it is you want to do and see, yeah, are you going to see something you're not supposed to see or do we not want you in that area for whatever reason? Then they approve it. I think it gets kicked over to the army who's like the boots on the ground that is who's going to have to deal with you. And um, I think it's just whatever brigadier is in charge of the area at any given time that will say like, yeah, great. We'd love to have climbers or like, no, we don't really want to deal with that right Mm, now. Gotcha. And then I think that package gets thrown back to the intelligence service for final approval. And if any of those guys say no, then the answer is no. And you'll never know why, but equally so they could say yes. And it could go across someone's desk, you know, two weeks before you're supposed to leave and they say, wait, what? No. Which is exactly what happened in 2017. Oh, okay. We had the permit literally two days before we were going to fly. We heard the permit was pulled. Oh. So we had this debate of what should we do? And we ended up flying to Islamabad with no permit and spending like four days calling in every favor we could oh, wow. until our permit was reinstated just as mysteriously as it was revoked. So, oh, man. you know, it's funny. It sounds really dramatic to talk about this permitting thing, but it's just, you know, it's like, you, it's kind of a big ask of, yeah, of all the people involved to say, Hey, can like we come and, you know, be in your hair while you're trying to do whatever, like in a war zone. Um, yeah. Is it cool if we just like set up some tents and like run around climbing? And if we get in trouble, can we use your helicopters to rescue us? Is that cool? It's like, right. It's right. pretty understandable how they might say like, no. Do you think they're tuned into like mountaineering and alpine climbing culture at all? Like, do they understand that it's a cool thing or are they just like, what the hell are you guys doing out there? You know, I think that's really, it's an interesting question because the answer is it just depends on who. Okay. Um, because in 2000, I think it was 2000, there was an expedition that went in there, uh, composed of Steph Davis, uh, Jimmy Chin. I forget who else was on the expedition. Um, but they got permission to go climb this beautiful rock tower because the brigadier general at the time was really into climbing. I mean, they, I wouldn't say they have a deep history of, uh, of mountaineering there, but obviously, you know, K2 is in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. All the Gasherbrums, you know, a bunch of the 4,000ers are, or sorry, 8,000 meter peaks are there. So, um, they've dealt with climbers a bunch and there have been some really, really exceptional Pakistani, uh, mountaineers, most notably Nazir Sabir, who, uh, is, uh, the guy who we work with a lot on these trips, but he put up a new route on K2 back in, uh, 84, 80. I can't remember with the Japanese. He was the first Pakistani to climb Mount Everest. So um, I think if you get somebody who's like, oh, climbing is cool. Great. Let them go. And if you get the guy who's like, I don't care about climbing. Like this sounds like a pain. Right. Don't let them go. Do you think, and also, I mean, that just brings to mind, do you think there's any politics involved as far as if if someone is into climbing, are they going to want their Pakistani, you know, hero to have a chance at this mountain that's got this kind of legacy around it? Or are they like pretty open to anybody doing it? 
I, I think the politic is less around that and more about um, about tourism. So when we okay. were there in 2017, they were kind of leading up to a general election and um, a guy named Imran Khan, who was a former uh, cricket star, um, was uh, running for office and everybody said like, oh, he, there's no way he'll get uh, elected. And it was a to- at a time when they were pretty like disillusioned with... Um, with their government and he did get elected. Um, people still have plenty to complain to or complain about with that, but he's been really pro tourism. Mm. And so I think the politic of why these areas continue to open up is I think that, um, he's listened to the people in this region who used to have, you know, really rich trade in, in tourism because people would go there to go trekking and go for their, you know, mountain climbing, mountain walking holiday, the same as you would in India or Nepal. Mm. And they've lost a lot in the last like 20, 30 years since the Siachen conflict started. So I think they've kind of, uh, been listened to on this one and, and uh, Islamabad is saying open it up to tourism again. Got it. So. Okay. Uh, regarding your training, so you're talking about spending a lot of time in specific preparation for something like this. Obviously, you're an incredibly well-rounded climber. You've got rock climbing skills. You've got ice climbing skills, mixed climbing skills. You're comfortable in snow. But it sounds like this climb was a lot of just wallowing in snow. <laughs> you did a little bit of uh, ice climbing, a little bit of uh, mixed climbing and dry tooling and stuff. But is that true? Just a lot of wallowing in snow. And then what's the training look like for something like that? What do you, what do you, uh, what are you doing to prepare? Yeah. So, um, so I actually got really lucky a handful of years ago that I was giving a presentation here in Bend. I forget what the series was even for, but a guy named Scott Johnston also uh, was giving a presentation as part of the series. And Scott wrote a book called Training for Alpine or Training for the New Alpinism uh, with Steve House. Oh, yeah. Who... So the connection is Steve is from Oregon um, and used to live here in central Oregon. And for anybody who doesn't know Steve House, he's like probably the most famous alpinist of our generation. Mm. Um, And uh, Scott also used to live here. Scott's made his career training Nordic athletes and has, you know, trained a bunch of Olympic level athletes. And he uh, started training Steve because once they both left Central Oregon, they both ended up in Washington's Metau Valley. And through their kind of work together, getting Steve ready for big expeditions, they sort of I wouldn't say they invented, but they certainly refined and cataloged kind of a technique for training for this type of climbing. Okay. And so I met Scott at that uh, program and um, asked him if he would work with me. And I've worked with him and their company, Uphill Athlete, since. And um, I feel super lucky because they've gotten, they've been insanely successful and they're super busy and they're training everybody from, you know, a guy who wants to climb Rainier next summer as like his big goal and you know people who are doing this at an elite level whether it's mountain running or uh randonnée racing ski mountaineering mountain climbing etc they've got an incredible team um but anyway so i basically just do what scott tells me okay and when we were talking about this in 2017 you know he we sat down and i talked to him about what the route look, looked like and he said well basically it sounds like unless you're really wrong you climb hard enough technically for all of the um 
for all of the mixed or ice or whatever you're going to encounter. So it doesn't feel like we need to, you know, get you to be better at that. We need to get you to the point where you feel like you can do a lot of that in a row and at altitude and with a pack on. But mostly this sounds like a lot of hard work. And so those guys have put together exactly the training program for that, which is maintain your rock climbing, maintain your mixed climbing. But really, if you can climb rock and you have the technique for mixed, it's the same. It's just holding on and pulling. Okay. And get really good at going up hills for a long time with heavy weights and like get your core strong get your legs strong get your heart strong and like we're just gonna hammer that for basically eight months before you go wow so wow yeah got it sounds terrible to me <laughs> it's a lot it's kind of fun and it's been great actually because with scott and uh and steve having lived here in central oregon they Scott doesn't say like, oh, hey, find a hill like this to do this workout on. He tells me exactly where to go. And so it's, you know, go to this hill, fill up your water containers in this, you know, creek. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, put, you know, 60 pounds on your pack. And I know it takes exactly, you know, this amount of time to get to the top of this hill if you're nailing the workout. Wow. So, so it's been really fun. That's super cool. In as much as climbing water up hills is fun. Do you enjoy it? Or are you just thinking about links on the whole time? <laughs> no, I enjoy it. I mean, I think that, you know, some people like training more than others. Mm -hmm. And I, I certainly wouldn't have the attention span for it if I didn't have the end goal in mind. But mm -hmm. I'd also be lying if I said I didn't enjoy it in that masochistic kind of way. I mean, I know that, you know you're a training fanatic yeah. from what I hear. And it looks really different, but in, <laughs> sure. In my yeah. Own way. But yeah. you know what it's like. It's yeah. like the yeah, days when yeah. you don't really want to do it. You're still like proud of yourself on some level. And it feels good to like, to know that you're like getting stronger and building something. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the goal is kind of just the compass, right? Like it's guiding you into a direction and a lifestyle that you just really enjoy anyway. And, it gets you to get out, you know, and, and push yourself and live the kind of life that you want to live, regardless of what the outcome of the, the climb ends up being. Yeah. I imagine that's got to be really similar. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure the life I, the life I want to live definitely involves trying hard. Sometimes yeah. I wonder if the life I want to live involves, you know, those workouts exactly, but um, <laughs> I get to not do them for another few months. So, so you guys end up going over there and it's you and Graham, you guys are both in your thirties and you've got Steve and Mark. We haven't talked about Mark yet. Um, two guys in their sixties. And that's really interesting to me. It's, uh, it's obviously a team that's a mix of, you know, Graham kept saying you guys were providing the horsepower and, um, sounds like Steve's providing a lot of the management, um, problem solving sort of skill set. What, what are the different roles that you guys are all playing on something like this? And why was, uh, why was that team such a good combination of skills? Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of, it's really funny for me to answer these, this question in particular, because, um, it sounds like I'm just saying it cause it's, it's a good story, but it's really true that everybody brought a skill set that was complementary, and we ended up needing all of them in the end. Oh, cool. And it's like the kind of the symmetry of this whole story is something that I think uh, will leave all four of us feeling like we were part of something really special out there. But in terms of the nuts and bolts of it, I would say that Steve and Graham are both really good organizers. They're really good project managers. Like, you know, I will, I'll get us there. And, you know, I, I, as a guide, I like do do a lot of logistics. Um, 
as part of my job, but I'm not the guy who wants to live in Excel. Uh, yeah, some people really like it. Yeah, and Stephen Graham are both that guy. Okay. Like, they're both really good with that stuff. Yeah. And, like, you know, I'll make the phone call to bug somebody for something, but I don't really want to. Okay. Those guys, like, enjoy it. That's, okay. like, their scene. Um, so they contribute hugely in, in that. I mean, Steve, in particular, has the organizational knowledge of how you do these big expeditions. And, frankly, what I've learned over a bunch of years of expedition climbing is the best expedition climbers you know, they're not better climbers than anybody else. They're better researchers. They're better logisticians. They're better at taking care of themselves. They're better strategists. And Steve is pretty much the best at all of those things. <laughs> okay. So that's what he brings to the table. Graham is really good at that sort of thing as well. And uh, I mean, in addition to just being an incredibly positive person um, to be out there with, you know, that's not to discount either of their climbing abilities. They're both great climbers. Mm -hmm. um, that just doesn't happen to be the hardest thing to find, I don't think, in an alpine climbing partner. Okay. Um, and I think uh, both have a, a good eye for the, the long game. You know, I think that it's always... It's, there's so many qualities that you're looking for in a partner for anything, but especially in alpine climbing, you, know, you want somebody who's kind of got the same vision that you do for what you want to do when you're, when you're out there, the kind of lines you're seeking and somebody who pushes you to kind of give everything you've got and, you know, brings the best out of you. But you also want somebody who shares the same kind of risk assessment that you do and, mm. and, and knows, you know, when to pull back. And I think that you see sometimes these partnerships where both people are, they are the special people that they are because they give so much and are willing to completely, you know, go all the way. But often, you know, like those relationships result in a bunch of great t climbs until somebody um, doesn't come home. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing I think as a young climber you hear about. And uh, then eventually if you like stay in this particular game long enough like you start losing people and it's like um it starts to feel a lot more real yeah, so uh yeah. i think having partners that you feel like bring the best out of you but are also like gonna pull you back or like gonna pull themselves back and like keep the, the eye on coming home as much as possible i mean accepting that what we're doing is like insanely dangerous and super high risk and if you like you know if you can't accept that then you can't go you know do this kind of climbing in the mountains but once you do accept that there's still ways that you can approach it and still like you know um those critical decision moments where you either push into the, the less safe terrain or you decide to, hey, this isn't feeling right. We need to turn around right now. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. So both of those guys have the vision for that. And so does Mark. Okay. Um, and I don't, I didn't know Mark uh, before this expedition uh, other than by reputation and knew that he and Steve were really close. And, um, you know, Mark's got an equally impressive resume and is an equally kind of just effective individual overall. He's been super duper successful in his business life and um, is another guy who, you know, kind of stands out as an example of a, a whole person in this world that, you know, he's got a successful business, he's got a beautiful family, and he's, you know, still climbing 513 at 60. And it's like, yeah, that's the guy, you know, those are the guys you want to hang out with. Yeah, so. cool.
Yeah. So that's a perfect lead in. So I was watching or I was listening to rather an interview with uh, Steve Swanson and, and Graham as well on uh, the Dirtbag Diaries podcast. And it was a really nice episode. I'll link to it in the show notes at uh, over at thenuggetclimbing.com. And Steve was talking about how one of his challenges in the last few years is that he has to keep finding these younger and younger partners. Like all of his partners that he's been climbing with forever just keep aging out and he just ends up climbing with younger and younger guys. But, you know, he also said it's it's a really neat opportunity for him because he can l- learn from the younger generation and they can learn from him. And I was just curious, is there is there anything that you learned from Steve or from Mark or, or both of those guys on this trip? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I've learned a lot about the, the organizational aspects and I, I, you know, I've been on a bunch of big trips before this, but watching them be themselves on expedition is... I think really helpful. It's like if you went on the trip and you were with somebody who was just nervous all the time and was super stressed and was, you know, a hundred percent fixated on the objective and had a lousy time, it would be a lot different than being with these guys who are super comfortable, who are being present out there and, um, taking the time that you get to spend as with yourself and with your partners as a gift. Mm -hmm. And, um, carrying that into the climbing where it helps you remember the the idea that getting to the top of this thing sure it's like the stated goal but you know as cliched as it sounds um all of it's really just a context for being the person that you want to be and, mm-hmm. and giving yourself the opportunity to to live this adventurous life that's you know full of meaningful experiences that you share with people that you love and those guys have been doing it for the last together for the last 30 years and it shows and um it's hard to really i guess quantify those lessons but i think just soaking it up when you're around them is is really useful of just yeah this is not only an example of how you do this like this style of alpine climbing but also just uh two guys living lives that are full and admirable and that you know Mine wouldn't be as rich without theirs in it. Hmm. That answers the question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Steve seems to have a really healthy and, and really mature perspective around the expedition and the goal and just the experience. Uh, it seems like he's a guy that is really comfortable with finding uh, enjoyment and appreciation in the process and not needing the outcome. I also listened to an interview with you after your guys' 2017 attempt. You mentioned that a couple times that you guys were out there in 2017 and you tried Linksar and you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a really, it was a short interview with you and I can link to that one as well. I think, I can't remember the name of the the podcast that it was on, but you had a, I really enjoyed and appreciated your philosophy around the failure and how, you know, the word failure maybe didn't do it justice. Um can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I came home from that trip and people asked how was it and it was again I felt like I like I was feeding people a line saying, you know, it was this incredible trip in every way except that we didn't get to the top. And yeah, like I'm I was grumpy then that we didn't get to the top and I'm incredibly grateful now that we did, but you know, it's not bullshit that it was an amazing trip i you know i'd never been to pakistan before i'd never met all these incredible people before i'd never seen these mountains i you know shared a really rich set of experiences with the two men who who i'm incredibly close with now and that's not failure um 
we did, you know, depending on your perspective, we did fail to climb the mountain and certainly we did. But, you know, if you take a, a longer view on it, and I know that one of the things that Steve always says is, you know, pulling back, he likes to talk about pulling back to the 50,000 foot view hmm. and, um, or 30,000 foot or something. I don't know. But, um, you know, now it's easy to see since we did it, that it was just one step. It was part of the process of doing it. It's a lot harder to see when you're at the part of the process where you didn't get what you wanted. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, you know, having that kind of bigger perspective is something that is really been part of Steve's uh, world and is something that, you know, we talk a lot about and try to stay really aware of. And um, in the end, Again, as cliched as it sounds, it turns out to be true because yeah. like none of what we did this year would have meant as much to me if we didn't have that experience in 2017 as well. Mm. That said, we got completely routed by weather and certainly had its <laughs> like miserable parts. But well, I think I, I mean I don't think you stay in this game very long if you're not okay with not sending every once in a while because it's a huge gamble. You know, you have this limited time window. You might get shut down by weather. You know that going into it, and you're still committing eight months or 12 months of your life to this thing. So I, I can't imagine that you stay in it very long if you have like a, you know, if that whole process isn't kind of a victory in itself or, or worth it for itself, for its own sake. Yeah, and I think that, you know, like we were talking about kind of just it being a context for living the life you want to be and hopefully like be your the best version of yourself and i don't think it matters whether you're climbing mountains or you know frankly doing anything else you've got to put yourself out there and you know that involves being willing to fail and you know it's it's terrifying i'm sure there's some venues in my life where i would do well to heed my own advice on that one right <laughs> but it's like it doesn't matter whether it's climbing or certainly what part of climbing it is you've got to like you've got to be willing to fail or you're ever going to get anything done mm -hmm. so so you guys were up at about it must have been i don't know twenty-two thousand feet or something you're getting really close to the top i think you had three or four pitches left graham's leading and you're belaying and graham takes this 100 foot fall what was your experience like being on belay and seeing graham it, it, he knocked a slab of snow loose takes this fall yeah so um so for anyone who doesn't know the story already, Graham gets knocked off his feet by an avalanche, goes for a big fall, and is totally okay. Poor, I feel like it's worth saying yeah. that first. <laughs> this is the first time anyone's hearing the story, although I just ruined the suspense. But yeah, you know, one of the um, trickiest things about climbing this mountain this summer was the snow. And, um, you know, we, we went early this year. We gave ourselves a lot of time, and we found that it was one of the heaviest winters that they'd ever had in the Karakoram, or at least they had on record, and that everything was insanely snowy, and that presented all kinds of problems um, from, you know, the, the meadow where we had camped in 2017 was not a grassy meadow. It was five feet of snow. Mm -hmm. um, so it made it tricky to establish an advanced base camp. We did a lot of digging. Yeah, you guys did a ton of digging. <sighs> so much digging. So much, honestly, so much digging. And it was just like hilarious because, um, you know, you know on these trips that everybody back home is like, 
sending and like doing all kinds of cool <laughs> climbing. And, you know, I'm hearing from, you know, from uh, Lizzie, my girlfriend, like, oh, she just did this route and this route and that route. And I'm like, that's cool. I have dug in the mud for the last week. I've built a number of stone platforms. I've hacked drainage channels out of wet grass. Like it's like manual labor. But, you know, you're trying to keep your eyes on the prize. Anyway, so it was really snowy. And um, part of our the difficulties were knowing what you could and couldn't do um, in order to not get caught in some sort of, you know, heinous large avalanche. And you know, we were really patient and waited until the mountain was seemed like it was in good enough condition to be climbed without adding that danger factor. Obviously, you know, there's no way you can create a map of the snowpack on the entire mountain. Um, and that last day, you know, those, the, I should say in the days leading up to that, we hadn't seen any signs of instability in the snow. And, you know, as somebody who kind of is a snow professional and like manages risk professionally, it's like, that's, that's one of the things that I kind of bring to the team is a lot mm. of, um, a lot of experience in that stuff. And so I in particular was really keeping my hackles up for it. And that day I kind of led the, you know, I led started that day off and led us through some technical pitches and some easier travel on lower angle snow. And, um, I did find evidence of a small slab, but it was really shallow and it was the first time I'd seen it, um, that day. And it, it seemed like, uh, no, we didn't encounter it again for the rest of the day. And I was like, you know, we were on the lookout, but the snow was just deep and unconsolidated and lousy. And, uh, it was hard to find, it was hard to move. It was hard to find anchors. Like when I look back at the pictures now, the trenches are just kind of hilarious. Um, but, uh, I was finishing my lead block and was sort of, you know, in one of those moments of feeling a little like burnt and kind of strung out and, um, hadn't been able to, I don't think place much gear on that route. Cause again, it's just sort of unconsolidated snow. And, um, miraculously as I kind of approached this little rib found two really good screw placements and built an anchor that was like unassailably good and mm. super duper, like really, really psyched to have that. And that was, uh, me turning over the, or where I turned over the lead block to Graham. And so he goes out around the corner and, you know, he finds some not great ice and places screw and then he climbs up above and he's totally out of sight. And at one point I look up and see snow coming, coming down at us and yell avalanche. And we're getting hit with the snow that's kind of washing down the face above us. And, you know, it was pretty scary for a moment until you realize, no, like, this isn't the story where, like, this is some massive avalanche that's going to, like, tear your anchor out and clear you off the face. It was like, this is over pretty quickly, and it wasn't that big. Um, and my worry when it was over wasn't, am I okay? It was, I'm holding Graham on the ropes. Is he okay? Mm. And so we'd been climbing as a team of four, so one person would lead trailing two ropes, and two people would climb on the end of those and one of them would trail the fourth or the third rope for the fourth person. So Mark and I were at the belay. Steve was just coming up to the belay. So he was on an independent rope and we were able to belay him out so that he could talk to Graham. And it's like not a very funny memory except for this part of we could hear Graham yelling, which was like this huge relief because, you know, your initial thought is, Am I holding an okay gram or like a not okay gram? Yeah. So when he was yelling, you know, Mark and I were like, okay, great. And Steve's maybe like 
mm, 20 feet off to our side at the rib where he can look over the other side. And uh, we can hear him yelling. But Steve's like, I can't hear him. <laughs> and we're like, what do you mean you can't hear him? I can hear him. What's he saying? And he's like, I don't know. And then I looked over and like, it was kind of cold. Yeah. Steve had like, you know, a warm hat and like six hoods up, including <laughs> his helmet. And I was like, Steve, take your fucking hoods off. And he was like, oh yeah, okay. And took them off. And he's like, oh, he says he's okay. <laughs> like, oh my okay, awesome. Great. And Steve and I have like both laughed about that since, but, um, you know, then the question was, well, what's okay mean? Is he like, okay, yeah. okay? Or is he like, not merely dead, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, in this kind of like relayed yelling match, he's like, no, I really think I am okay. And so, you know, often when you have to, um, uh, when you can't free climb a pitch in this rope setup, you'll jug one of the skinny, you know, half ropes and get belayed on the other. So in order for that to happen, Steve had to build an anchor, you know, fix the line for Graham to jug and belay him on the other. And this whole time, Mark and I are kind of huddled together at the original belay, having this conversation of like, what does this mean? Like the summit's right there. Obviously we've got a bunch more climbing between here and there, but is this how the story ends? Like, are we done? Are we going down now? And you're at what twenty two thousand feet? Um, I think we're higher, but I, no, yeah, you're right, something like that. We're at like sixty. You're really close. Yeah, we're close. We're basically like three three pitches probably, and like two or three of them are. We still have to do some traversing, mm -hmm. but we even with like a few traversing pitches, um, you're like really close. We're like less than. 500 feet below the top oh man and you can see it right there and it's like you know the day was kind of in and out but at that time it was like shining in the sun and you know the conditions have been really tricky that day there was some great climbing but some really bad climbing but still it felt like we're pretty close again like how is the story ending is it ending in like graham's not okay okay no that's good is it ending in we have to execute a rescue and get him down no that's good is it ending in we're going down like because he just took this big scary fall like i don't know that would suck but we're done if that's how it ends and you know of course mark and i feel kind of guilty for having this conversation on some level of you know our friend just took this what what we didn't really know at the time um, was quite a large fall. Uh, you know, even if you get caught in a little avalanche when you're skiing and there's no consequences to it, you know, when you get knocked off your feet by moving snow, it's pretty scary. And to do it, you know, five days up a remote mountain in the middle of nowhere, it's like really scary. Yeah. So basically the conclusion we kind of came to was, if it's possible to keep going, it'd be awesome So to keep going so that the story doesn't end with we got really, really close after years of effort and this happened. But, like, that's not for us to decide. And mm -hmm. if, if Graham comes up, basically we decided, like, if Graham comes up here and he wants to go down, like, we're, we're done. And so Steve, kind of off, you know, away from us has been just having you know the thought the conversation within his head and I've, i think we all are going to remember this a little bit differently but i kind of remember graham getting up and us seeing he was actually okay 
and you know actually okay was like unscathed completely tore a zipper pull off his jacket and but his chapstick was still inside the pocket <laughs> he tells the <laughs> story he does this full self-assessment the only thing he finds is a broken zipper pull takes his chapstick out secures it in another pocket yeah everything's good <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and so you know steve says something i think to the effect of like okay well we'll get ready to go down and mark and i kind of I don't think we disagreed, but because I, I, my memory, uh, Graham said something immediately of, well, I'm not leading anymore. Like, I'm kind of shaken up, but I'm, I'm okay. I would really like to keep going if mm-hmm. one of you guys is psyched to, to get in front. And the, the deal kind of was up to that point, like, that Graham and I would do all the leading in the technical terrain because we were just able to do it faster. Um, and Mark and Steve would kind of put in an equal amount of work or like do more of just the work um, to help make up for it. And so I took back over once we asked him like are you sure are you sure you're sure are you sure you want to go up and then it was like it was really intense because i kind yeah. of like i had to go out past him and i got like a few meters past and just like came back and um we just like held each other and cried for a minute and it was really intense and uh then i took off wow man yeah so you're yeah you're passing where you know he triggered the slab where you know he took the fall yeah had the loose slab you know it's gone as as the snow kind of in a better condition for you on your lead yeah so we were kind of working our way up and left across this kind of uh, face feature below the summit ridge because it had seemed initially like it was going to make sense to basically go straight up this face and hit the summit ridge. And then you'd walk along the summit ridge, but it turned out that wasn't like, that wasn't going to be possible. It was like mm. the summit ridge a wasn't walkable. It was like this enormous, completely, you know, unconsolidated heinous cornice system thing. Mm. Um, and so we were kind of working our way across these flutings and Graham basically went around the corner and tried to go up and triggered the avalanche up closer to the ridge. And um, so we could look up and see that spot where it had happened. And I wasn't at all worried about that doing it again, but it also seemed like I could take another path, path to like traverse straight across towards kind of an ice runnily face kind of thing tucked in under a rock band where it seemed like, you know, it was very much not the same piece of terrain that he had engaged and you know yeah i felt a little bit like a bit of hesitation or trepidation maybe traversing across but um it was the going up that had got us into the unstable snow so staying below that it was it turned out that it was possible to go around it okay and then you guys get to like the last pitch you're standing right below the summit of linksar trying to figure out how to get the top my understanding is that you take a crack at it. It's just the weirdest snow conditions. You you just you don't don't know how to climb it. And luckily, you've got Mark, who's got I, what, what what is his background? He's got some like really obscure skill set in snow travel. <laughs> yeah, and so- he just comes out of nowhere and is able to hike you guys up to victory how did that play out so i you know led a couple more pitches and the last one was 
like getting us towards the summit. But, you know, when you're that close, it's like hard to tell where the summit really is in mm. this case. It's like you basically are just going to keep going upwards until you can't, there's nothing above you. And so I, I get us to the summit ridge and I'm like certain we're on the summit ridge. But again, it's not like a nice ridge. You can't stand on it. And all I can get for an anchor is like hacking a chunk of the cornice out and like burying myself in a hole, get the guys up and like, you know, I lead out and so I'm traversing out and I can tell like, you know, there's this little bit of a fluting and I think I need to go beyond it and keep traversing towards the summit. Um, but you know, there's no gear. It's like pretty steep. It's very heinous climbing. I kind of do this like overhead tunnel through the fluting and end up on like a probably like 70 degree steep face of double overhead, uh, like sugar. And it's like, I thought I had to cross it. And I kept thinking, man, if I cross that, I'm going to take out all the support for all the sugar above me. And even if it, I don't think it's going to avalanche as a slab, but if all that snow falls down on me, then it'll knock me off my feet. And I basically don't have any gear in and that'll be bad. So I came back and tried to go around the other way and fell into the cornice and like fell head high into like the other unconsolidated sugary stuff and basically just came back to the, um, to the belay feeling really dejected. And, you know, we kind of had this weird conversation of, you know, well, maybe like this is just an unclimbable piece of snow. Maybe this is the summit. And it was sensible to have that conversation, but it didn't feel like the summit. Like it, it's like, I know Graham was saying this in his, in the presentation, like, it's like you have this vision of standing on top of something, not what happened there because it was obvious there was still mountain above us. Even yeah. if it's like 20 feet of mountain, it's still 20 feet and, um, and it matters. And, uh, so I kind of said, you know, I mean, Graham wasn't leading anymore. Steve was busy trying to find us a better anchor than Graham in the snow hole. And, you know, I kind of said like, Hey Mark, would you go up there and take a look? And I honestly wasn't even thinking about Mark's background, but Graham was. And so Mark, uh, Mark cut his teeth climbing in Peru and Peru is famous for fucked up snow climbing. Okay. And it was like Graham and, and I had been in the front basically the whole trip and Steve and Mark, lovely humans as they are, like they're amazing climbers and they're definitely like alpha humans who are not used to being in the back. And neither of them have definitely ever like climbed a big mountain route where they weren't leading an equal share. Mm -hmm. And so like Mark was not only like the exact right person for the guy that basically he's the fucked up snow expert and we have fucked up snow, but he's also the guy who like is the coiled spring because he hasn't been out front and hasn't been doing what I'm sure like every fiber in his being wants to do, which yeah. is like lead the team up the mountain. And I haven't actually talked to him about it in a while. Like, I don't know that he set out thinking he was going to get to the summit. He just kind of followed my track and then gave us the, oh, I'm just going to poke a little bit up here. Oh, I'm just going to see. And I know that it was taking a long time and Steve and Graham and I kind of had moments of not really being sure if this was a good idea. And I remember Graham saying something to me about like, yeah, like I... I'm not sure, like I'm feeling a little shaken, but I'm going to check myself and just consciously shut up here. And 
you know, eventually after lots of wiggling and yelling, like, I think I'm getting somewhere. I think I'm getting closer. It was like, oh shit, I'm on top. Hmm. And it was this like crazy moment of relief. And, you know, we all like, I was the next to go up there. It was like the clouds had been in and out all day. And then we got up there and they just like cleared. Oh and my gosh. You couldn't see like all the big mountains to our north, all the, the 8,000ers were to our north. Um, and since we were climbing on a Southeast face, you couldn't see them from anywhere down in our Valley. And all of a sudden you got up on Lynx R and it was like, there's K2, there's K6, there's K7, there's oh. Gasherbrum 4, like all the mountains that you know the name of. And it was like, you know, the hour before sunset. So everything was just like lit up in perfect Alpenglow. And like Mark and I had a moment up there <laughs> and then of course got everybody else up. But, but that's why I said, it's like this amazing symmetry that it's like, it sounds like you're making it up. Like you've got to be making this up for the story or or embellishing or whatever, just embracing the, the cliche, but it's actually true. Like it's the way it panned out is, I mean, those, those moments happen. That's why, that's why you do it. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those. Um, and then of course, you know, there's other parts that were funny. Like I assumed Mark must've been wearing, I know I told this story at the slideshow. I assume Mark must've taken his puffy jacket. Um, cause <laughs> oh, he, right. he, he had an orange jacket and he was wearing an orange jacket where he left when he left, but it turns out he didn't. And he was like soaking wet and freezing cold. <laughs> and I had a puffy and he was really psyched for me to give it to him. And I'm a size small and Mark's a size large. So that's <laughs> makes the summit photos funnier to me at least. <laughs> so you guys make it to the summit of this thing. And then it's still, what was it, like three days of repelling to get off the mountain? Yeah. And I just have a note here that says, anchor building, stuff sacks, peeing on snow. Yeah. Tell me about, <laughs> tell me about getting off the mountain. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, we... Uh, a part of that perfect symmetry was like, as we're getting to the top, it's like Graham's belaying in the hole, Mark's getting us up there, like Steve is building an anchor. Um, we all kind of climbed back down to it because um, there was nothing to repel off the top with, but had a perfectly safe repel anchor. And um, we're able to get down most of the way just on nice ice screw anchors for that first night. But we knew that the anchor that was going to get us back to camp was going to be problematic because it was like, Leading that up, you climb this nice ice face, then it rolls back to like a flat snow slope where there's nothing you can get for an anchor except you sitting in the snow, mm. which is fine for belaying people up. doesn't work so well as a rappel because right. you don't want to leave a person there. <laughs> um, and, and so it's kind of a technique to, um, in snow, fill a stuff sack with something, um, or sorry, fill a stuff sack with snow, uh, and then you know, use that as a rappel anchor once you've buried it and stomped on it, et cetera, a dead man. But it doesn't work if the snow's so dry and crystalline that it doesn't consolidate. So, you know, we're basically like, this isn't hairy. We're like standing there on this flat snow slope, but it's the middle of the night. We've like been out for a long time and we're just kind of collectively very tired and, and dehydrated. Like, like, yeah, dehydrated <laughs> and kind of science projecting like, huh, well, we, we built two dead men and equalized them and then they ripped out. So... We have pickets. Those aren't going to do us any good in this situation, I don't think. Like, what can we do? And the thing that you can do is sort of work hard in the snow and just stomp on it a bunch and try to consolidate it. Um, and it was still pretty dry. So we realized, like, 
you know, the, the stuff sacks weren't, um, they didn't have that much structure to them either. And I don't even know whose idea it was, was like, well, maybe we could moisturize them and help them freeze into being something stronger if in addition to stomping on them we melted and froze them a little bit and when bet we could do that with warm urine <laughs> so we just peed on them and stomped on them some more and let it freeze and it it worked <laughs> and you know like it just took a while and felt kind of ridiculous because you definitely want to test those things to the point where you know you really feel like i know we just buried some stuff stacks filled with snow and peed on them but like I really believe this anchor is going to hold. And that kind of thing just kind of kept happening on the way down where all this heinous snow climbing on the way up just led you into these like protracted science experiments on the way down that none of us, like nobody objected to it taking forever to get an unassailably good anchor. Mm. And to do that just was a pain in the ass, took forever. And then, you know, it would get hot and you had to stop repelling because you were too worried about things falling on you. So the way down just kind of took a while. Stuff sacks and warm urine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bomber. Yeah. A couple of them were uh, U.S. Postal Service priority mailing envelopes, those white Tyvek <laughs> bags. They got like, um, you know, that sticky tab closure oh, yeah. on them and everything. Those yeah. are good and free. <laughs> Why did you have those in your bag? For that purpose. Oh, really? They also make excellent crampon bags. They're very hard to puncture. Oh, yeah. And they're okay. ultra light and again free. Cool. Yeah. So I met you through Lizzie Van Patten, who you were dating, who's a longtime friend of mine. And I was talking to her a few weeks back, maybe a couple maybe even a couple months ago, and I was asking her if she was going down to Patagonia this winter. And I was surprised to hear that she was not. I think initially you guys had planned to go, and for whatever reason, it's not going to work out. Not my fault, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not your fault. But she did express that you were like pretty psyched that it fell through and that you're not going to Patagonia and that you're psyched because you get to go sport climbing. Yes. I thought that was really funny. I mean, I don't know you well, but just knowing what you do and knowing about this Linksar thing, I just assume like the more suffering, the better. So, so what is it about that? Why is it that you're psyched to go sport climbing this winter instead of going down to Patagonia? Well, I mean, I started as a climber, as a rock climber, and I love rock climbing. But it turns out once you kind of go down the path of serious, I'm putting quotes on it, serious alpine climbing, you don't get to do that much rock climbing because, you know, the goals of rock climbing training and the goals of alpine climbing are like not that compatible really and um just the time that you know you can only really point yourself totally towards one thing and so my rock climbing i mean it's not even like i want to say my rock climbing has suffered i just haven't gotten to do as much of it in recent years and you know i think the flip side of it is as well that you know i work as a mountain guide which means that i my entire like professional life is curating somebody else's experience and keeping somebody else safe in the mountains, keeping myself safe in the mountains. And those things are, you know, I love it. I love the craft of what I do, but it's stressful. You know, every ski season I finish and think like, oh man, I'm really psyched that we didn't have a bad avalanche incident or anything like that. And every alpine climbing season I finish, I think, you know, I'm really glad nobody got 
hit in the head with a rock or hurt in some way. And then you take an experience like links are where, again, I don't want it to sound overly dramatic, but you know, it's, it's pretty high risk environment you're functioning in sure. for a long time. And like, you know, you, you come, I come off all of those experiences and just want to make low consequence decisions. I want to have type one fun. <laughs> I want to, you know, climb for me and just like enjoy life without the, you know, any threat of death, no peeing on stuff sacks, like lots of bolts close together. And I'd like to wake up late and I'd like to go running and I'd like to eat and drink and like enjoy life. And so, I mean, I really do want to go to Patagonia, but you know, I would also love to go on a climbing trip, which actually involves a lot of climbing, not just thinking about climbing or attempting <laughs> to go climbing. So, yeah. Awesome. Where are you guys going to go? We're going to go to Greece. We're going to go to Leonidio because I've heard it's really good. I've never been to Greece. Um, it's really cheap. Uh, and the last time we went sport climbing uh, in Europe, we went to Sardinia, which is very cool. And I highly recommend it for anybody looking for kind of limestone adventure climbing, more new routing than you could ever need mm. and a really cool place, but not my favorite for holiday, like vacation climbing Okay, because it was bolted mostly, or at least the old crags. I know, sorry, Sardinia, there's lots of new rad stuff, but like a lot of the classic crags were bolted in the nineties. So the roots are polished, the bolts are far apart and often they're like rusty and bad. So we said for the new place or the next place we go, we want to go somewhere with new bolts that are close together and no polished holds. So awesome. an idea. Sounds like it's going to be an amazing trip. I hope. So I was poking around on your personal website a little bit and I was looking at your bio and one thing that stood out to me, there's, this is speaking about you. It says easily excited by coffee, beer, and wine and greasy food of any sort. And then I have a note that says Thai fried chicken. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about Thai fried chicken. <laughs> Thai fried chicken. Well, I, uh, I really love food and, um, in particular, no, not in particular, but one of the many foods that I love is Thai food. My neighbor growing up was Thai and I like got a taste for it early. Mm. Thailand is also a place that has amazing rock climbing, is dirt cheap. The people are lovely and the food's amazing. Have you spent some time there? Uh-huh. Oh. And Thai fried chicken is just a, it's just a beautiful thing. It's hard to describe. It's like not really <laughs> battered in the way ours is. It's got like a little bit of like a rice flour on it, but you serve it with this like awesome smoky, uh, like chili dipping sauce and it's like definitely high on the list of perfect foods if you like fried chicken do you have a favorite meal that you can remember after an expedition Ooh, that's a good question um <laughs> i can remember once in india we came down to the first town and uh um tried to order two cold kingfishers and uh the guy was like we have only one <laughs> and uh, my buddy who is indian like really doesn't was trying not in my memory at least he was trying not to really speak hindi because his like hindi was really rusty but he was like very unafraid of like telling those guys like you need to get more beer immediately <laughs> and then i remember they came back and like okay we're sending a guy to the to town what should we tell him to get and we we're like anything as long as it's cold <laughs> Um, but I don't know. I mean, on this trip we had fried chicken, uh, perfect and fries and, uh, I don't even remember what else. 
to be honest, you could basically give me anything that's not like dehydrated food immediately after right. an expedition and I will absolutely plow it. Right. But Is there something that you're like daydreaming about back when you get back home after a big trip like that? I mean, I completely hosed myself that I was reading like, you know, the best food writing of 2019 when I was up there. Bad choice. It's <laughs> like a really bad choice. Um, I read a great book. That is a bad choice. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, I'll always come down and want a cheeseburger, but, um, that's nothing new that happens when I'm at Smith. That's like, <laughs> that's pretty standard. <laughs> Though I will say in Pakistan, there's no beer in base camp. And there's Ooh. no beer in the villages, so you're really excited to get back to Islamabad where you can kind of have your, like, slightly illicit beer at the hotel. Got it. So another thing that I found really, really interesting, I mean, you have a pretty impressive tick list in general. A lot of the stuff I had to Google because I don't even know where these places are. But one really popped out at me. You, I don't know what when this was, but at some point you did a free solo ascent of the Matterhorn North Face in four hours and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. It's not fast by record setting times. I think, yeah, Uli did it in just over two, and I think it's been broken since then. Yeah, I think if I'm, my memory's not off, I think Uli did it in like an hour 50, I want to say. And then uh, Danny Arnold, another Swiss climber, broke his record. And I think it was like, I think he knocked 10 minutes off it or something like that. But, um, but that's still really amazing. And, and seemingly to me, I mean, I remember watching that segment with Uli. It looks really bold. Um, it looks incredibly technical. Is that becoming like a kind of popular standard soloist route up that thing? Or what, what drove you to want to do that? Um, I actually have an answer for that, which is, um, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's a popular soloed route. Obviously, you know, there's a long history of bold free soloing on the the big faces in the Alps. So, you know, I certainly think it's you know been done plenty. Um, but it is still like, I think it's about 3,800 feet long and is, I can't remember. I think it's M5 maybe, which is like 510 mixed climbing and some vertical ice. Um, I'll have to ask you about that later. I've always wondered about those grades. <laughs> yeah, well, that one... It, it it basically, so the reason I wanted to do it was because, um, I, when I was kind of a young climber, you know, I was reading a lot of different climbing books, but one that I read was Walter Bonatti's mountains of my life. And Walter Bonatti is like, he's any Alpine climbing dorks hero. And, okay. uh, I mean, Steve house used to have painted on the back of his van, that Bonatti is God. And, you know, he's a guy who's been credited with sort of founding the, um, modern school of alpinism that cares more about style than about results, I guess. Um, and, uh, his story is a really interesting one, but basically he went on the Italian expedition to, um, do the first ascent of, of K2 and he got embroiled in this whole scandalous story, basically where, um, the lead, uh, climbers accuse him of trying to steal their oxygen to make a summit bid himself. And he ends up spending a night out at, I can't even remember. I think it's like 7,800 meters without any sleeping bags or oxygen or anything. And then basically carrying down the, uh, frostbitten Balti Porter who he was with, um, the next day because that guy's like fingers and toes are destroyed. And mm. the expedition does make the first ascent, um, 
Bonatti basically gets discredited in the climbing world. And as his sort of last statement on his climbing ethic and like the truthfulness of his account goes out and basically proves he's the best climber in the world by soloing a new route on the North face of Ah. the Matterhorn in winter. And, uh, then a woman named Catherine Destevel, who was an amazing alpinist herself, um, goes back and repeats it solo in winter. I think in the 80s, the route was put up in the 60s. She did it. Maybe it was the 90s. I don't know. But um, I had read her account of it as well. And from those, the two of them, I always just thought like, man, I would love to climb the north face of the Matterhorn by myself one day. Mm. And um, so I guide the, you know, the ridge on the Matterhorn pretty frequently and, you know, spend a lot of time around the Matterhorn. And if you've ever been to Zermatt, it's like, you know, it's the most popular, most iconic, like, peak around and you know everybody climbs the um the regular routes on it but that north face doesn't come in all that often it's still like you know it's very sought after very climbed route when it's in condition but it's still got a kind of a reputation it's one of the six big north faces of the alps and one year it was in and i thought it was time to do it so i took the train over from chamonix and you know slept underneath it and took a deep breath and uh, my goal was to do it in double Uli's time, and uh, then I got up near the top, and it was just a really pretty day, so I, I <laughs> blew my time by sitting down and drinking some tea. But Oh, that's a great reason to blow the time. <laughs> yeah, it seemed fine. It was kind of arbitrary anyway. That's awesome. Very cool. So you actually got a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Cinematography from NYU? Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've integrated into this lifestyle at all? Is that something that you've used along with your expedition climbing or do you have any plans for that? No, not a ton. Um, I've really enjoyed shooting on projects uh, like this Linksar thing where we shot a ton in 2017 and a ton in, in 2019 as well. And hopefully we'll we'll be putting together a movie project out of it. Oh, cool. Um, but it's, I mean, it's pretty funny to both Graham and I that he has a geology degree and runs a film company and I have a film degree and don't do anything with it. But, um, you know, I think visual storytelling is still a part of my life. I did a lot of photography and uh, in college, and that's definitely still part of my life. I still love images, and I still love movies, and I still love stories. But um, I never really wanted to be the guy who made the movie. I was more interested in, in like, the visual side of it and mm. the capturing the... Yeah, capturing the, the images, really. Um, and uh, now when I think about it, I mean, A, like I'm just like way out of date. Like I was just recently climbing with um, with someone who works in the film industry now. And, you know, we both joke about the, like the stuff that we were learning when we were younger seemed really important. But turns out you don't really need to know how to learn load a motion picture camera now with like 35 millimeter film. And right. I, I like barely know what to do with stuff now. But um, I also feel like when I stop doing the work that I'm doing now, it will probably be in favor of something with a little bit more stability and kind of less hustle. And that's definitely not filmmaking. So who knows? Okay. You seem like a really creative guy. I mean, I know that Lizzie's mentioned that you love music. Um, and I've seen that you have a really cool old like turntable, like DJ turntable at your house. 
is there something that you're doing now to kind of fill that creative need or, or do you have any creative outlet right now that you're balancing with, with climbing and all this other stuff? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I mean, I really do like, uh, I really do like taking pictures and I really do like writing though. I, I can't say I do either of those kind of as a like really regular practice. Um, uh, though I am really excited to work on this links our story, but, um, uh, I know, I think I put a lot of that into cooking. That's like the one sort of okay. like thing that I like to do pretty regularly that's creative. But I also see in on some level like the um, new rooting as a creative process. Sure. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time like developing roots at home and bolting things and cleaning things and making that Out kind Smith? of stuff. Uh, some at Smith, some okay. on other things around here. Uh, some like uh, we'll have to talk after this. <laughs> yeah, I want the beta. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think probably just like consuming a lot of media and then yeah, writing and uh, cooking. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any advice for someone who wants to get into expedition climbing? Where does someone start? Well, I think that I think that the natural progression has got to start with um, gaining experience and proficiency in technical climbing. And you know, I I came came from a background that's I think common to a lot of people who grew up on the East Coast, um, where you start rock climbing and then it becomes winter, and you start ice climbing, and um, you know, once you've ice climbed for a little bit longer, you start mix climbing and you get pretty decent at those. And then you kind of take that to the mountains. And I think for a lot of people who grew up other places like Oregon, you probably do it a little bit differently in that, um, you've probably been on a glacier maybe before you have climbed ice, but I think Mm. that there's no substitute for mileage and experience in that stuff. And I feel really, really lucky that as a, um, a mountain guide, I've gotten to, um, just rack up countless hours going out on days when, you know, you probably just wouldn't be there if Mm. you were just climbing for fun and gotten to sort of, um, test the limits of, you know, what is and isn't a good idea out there, what is and isn't workable weather and seeing, you know, just a lot of, um, a lot of days out. And I think that that's a foundation that's really important. But I also think that, um, there's a lot to be said for just, just going and you know it's it's all it's the same balance that we're all going to have in alpine climbing that you know you need to just go and throw yourself out there and um live the experience but you also need to do it in a way that's like conscious of where you're at and you know not just going to go out and try to get yourself killed but you know i feel like i meet a lot of young climbers who and i feel like such an old fart saying that because i'm like 36 (laughs) i'm like not old but um you know I meet a lot of young climbers who are incredible technical climbers, like way better than, uh, than I'll ever be. And who have a pretty well-developed sense of, of judgment, but still like are just sort of like afraid to go out there and afraid to do it and afraid of the process. And you look at someone like Swenson, you know, he went to the, Karakoram on his first couple expeditions when he was still in his 20s trying to do new routes on 8,000 meter peaks and he didn't do anything like totally failed but learned a ton from those experiences Mm. and I so I think if you know you can 
I guess my advice to young people uh, would be like, you know, get pretty good at the crag, you know, to the point where that's not going to be the crux of it. And then, you know, go out there and, and do it and hopefully do that with, you know, some modeling and mentorship from, you know, somebody who can kind of look at your plan and tell you if that's a good idea or not a good idea. And, you know, not that you um, can always do that kind of quarterbacking from home but yeah i think i think just getting out there and and gaining that experience is like the way you learn how it goes it's the way you learn how like you organize an expedition how you your body feels at altitude how you take care of yourself out there and you know that's like part of the process that just has to come from experience so if you can gain that experience while making sure you're you know keeping your eye on the long game of like coming home safe and uh that's I think the, I think that's the way. <laughs> yeah. It, just to clarify one thing you said, you, you said get good at the crag and that, is that, you know, rock climbing, ice climbing, mixed climbing, any and all those things? All of it. I think, I think, I think alpinists are, are on some level, the great generalists, you know, and it's like whatever, um, level you're doing at it at, you know, mountains are made of rocks, ice, and snow. So it helps to be able to climb all of those mediums and it helps to be able to climb fluidly between them when they're presented together. And, you know, there's, there's going to be guys like Josh Wharton who can boulder V10, climb M10 and 513 on the same day. Hmm. And, you know, the rest of us, whatever we might like hope to do one of those, but like, if you can climb 510, if you can climb WI4, if you can climb M5 and feel like you can, you know, climb those with a pack on and whatever, like that's what alpine climbing's about. It's not really about like the, you know, the impossible move. It's like doing the easy stuff when it's hard and when it's poorly protected and when it's out there and when you're tired and, you know, the weather sucks. And um, I think... I think that's like the base of what it's got to come from. Got it. Do you have any recommendations uh, for someone who is intrigued, but isn't sure if they want to commit to a full expedition? Like, is there, can you think of um, some objectives maybe in America, um, in the Western U.S. where uh, you can kind of dip your toe in, try something that's a little more approachable? You know, my, I'm going to give you like a really sideways answer to that, (laughs) which is that I think, I think that there was this, this part of climbing culture, which now I'm really going to sound like an old fart, but I think there was always this part of climbing culture, which was um, about adventure and which was about just kind of getting out there. And um, I think that you know, as climbing has gained in popularity and it's become so much more accessible, sadly, like that's one of the things that I see, um, being lost a little bit. Um, and you know, you see it all over that there's, you know, folks who, who climb, like I said, at an insanely high level and they do that in the mountains too, but they never like look beyond the, the kind of classics because there are so many guidebook classics to everywhere now, but you know, I think in North America, we still have a million new things to do and a million cool places to go explore. And without, uh, you know, telling anyone to go chase any bad ideas, like, I feel like, you know, 
just like chasing something that looks cool mm. and specifically you know it's like yeah like you should probably go alpine climbing in alaska or something like that go like climb some of the classics before you decide to just shoot off the map and alaska will teach you a lot about expedition climbing because the weather can be miserable and there's lots of digging and that sort of stuff and really heavy packs but you know i think that there's a lot of adventures to be had just kind of looking off the beaten path a little bit and that doesn't necessarily mean new routing that doesn't necessarily mean you know doing anything like super hard and scary but just like going someplace where you don't have all the information about it like <laughs> yeah a good way to learn yeah cool so this might totally flop because it's completely at this point a tangent but it's something i skipped over and wanted to come back to um we were talking earlier about steve swanson about um, him having young partners and kind of what you've learned from him. Do you think there's anything that he's learned from you? Oh, yeah, that's a funny question. Um, you know, I'm sure if you asked Steve that, he would have an interesting, I'm sure he'd have a good answer um, because I know Steve is, um, and Mark are both by no means, uh, you know, guys who believe that they don't have anything to learn from life. Mm. But what's really funny is that they've been climbing for a long time and they've seen a lot of changes in climbing technology and techniques and all that sort of thing. And teaching people the most current techniques is what I do and what I kind of have a hard time not doing sometimes. But with those two, I definitely made a point of kind of saying to myself, like, listen, what they've been doing for the last 30 years seems to be working just fine. Maybe like, don't give them shit about the way they do this or like, <laughs> don't, don't like offer unsolicited solicited advice about their repel technique. But one of the coolest things for me has been them seeing what I'm doing and then noticing maybe that Graham's doing it too. And then saying, hey, what is that that you guys are doing over there? That looks like that works better than what we're doing. Can you show me how to do that? Oh, cool. And that was, I have to say, like a very minor thing, but kind of a trip of feeling flattered that, you know, halfway up this mountain being asked by these two guys who have been like veterans of the game and my personal idols, like, Hey, show me how to do that thing. Like, <laughs> that was pretty cool. <laughs> awesome. I'd love to ask you uh, about what's going on right now. What is there anything that you've got going on that you're especially excited about right now? Yes. Give me one second. Can I go put some more? In? <laughs> yeah, we're yes, gonna pause. So <laughs> actually, that my answer to that is I'm drying. I'm washing a sleeping bag that came home from Linksar, and it's really, really gross. I'm gonna go put some more quarters in the uh, in the dryer. <laughs> He's excited to have a clean and dry sleeping bag all right so we're back so i was just asking you uh what is something that you are excited about right now and it could be upcoming trip it could be some new idea you've got kicking around new possibilities for the future um, anything come to mind yeah i mean i am really excited to just kind of be off leash I guess for the next um maybe six months because you know the one of the things that um I think Graham and I have taken from Steve and have kind of agreed on is that we're kind of part past the part of our lives where we just want to be on endless expeditions and mm. we both I think you know had a period where it was like oh you go to Alaska in the spring you go to the Himalaya in the fall and then you do it again and um you know, you kind of can't, I can't do that without getting burnt out. And, um, you know, I think that the best way for me to 
stay checked in to, you know, training and sort of focusing on an objective is to give myself times when I'm not. And yeah. so that's where I'm at right now that it's, you know, really brings into focus how much you do have to sacrifice when you're in that mode and how, you know, many whatever like dinners with friends you don't get to have or how many you know runs just because it's nice out you don't get to go on and you know going to spend time with my family and um going on vacation with my girlfriend and uh that's the stuff i want to do right now sport climbing yeah exactly i mean it's funny because we went and she and i did a route recently or most of it where I realized I was done coasting in terms of performance. I was like, okay, it took exactly three months for me to be pissed off that I can't climb a hard thing. So I do <laughs> like, I, I will be trying to get strong again for rock climbing, but um, I just want to go climbing because it's fun at awesome. this point and go skiing because it's fun and hang out with people because I can. So cool. Yeah. Do you have the next expedition in mind? Yeah, Graham and I have some ideas. Um, you know, we'll see how it all pans out, but we'd like to go back to Pakistan. Um, we've got, you know, kind of a couple things floating around <laughs> at, at any given time. I, I think I know where we're going to end up, but probably back in Pakistan in 2020. I like it. 2021. So much mystery. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. It's like, Don't uh, want anyone to snake the FA from you. And no, well, and it's also referred to in the game as tasty talking, you know, you might yeah. as well just wait until you've done it before you start talking about it. I like that. Yeah, I know. It's, it's the pre-spray. Yeah, that's exactly. what I've been calling it with sport climbing. I can't claim that, but that's what we've been calling it in sport climbing. And it's getting so much more common now with social media and all this stuff. And it's fun sometimes to see what people are getting excited about. But yeah, so at some level, it's just like, yeah, maybe just shut up until you do the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially, I mean, I don't, I don't really believe that anybody's going to try to like snake us on the projects that I'm thinking about. But, you know, I would feel... I would feel very self-conscious about talking about them at this point. <laughs> Fair enough. What is something that you have been especially grateful for lately? You know, I think on some level it's just that time to kind of breathe and, and feel like, um, uh, both obviously, you know, like a deep sense of satisfaction with having done this thing, but mostly I think with just kind of coming back with the, um, the contrast that you have having you know, been in that environment and, and in that kind of goal focused mode for a while and then coming back to bend and, you know, just getting to plug back into this like incredibly welcoming community of friends that I have here and, and feeling like, you know, when you're out in the mountains, obviously you feel really far away from the rest of your world and really grateful for the people that you're there with. But then when you get to kind of, uh, come back in, it feels really, really good. And, and like reminds me why this has been home for the last like 15 years or so. So yeah, awesome. it's, it's good to be home. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Um, that was let fun. people know where they can find you. Yeah, so uh, you can find me at uh, uh, www.nowclimbing.com and on Instagram is now underscore climbing. And um, I spend my time either climbing for myself or climbing for work all over the world. So um, if you want to go climbing, let me know. <laughs> Yeah, what about guiding? Do you got any plugs for that? Um, yeah, it's all at nowclimbing.com. But okay. um, yeah, uh, let's see. I mean, 
Bend, Oregon is amazing. I was guiding at Smith Rock this week, and even in the middle of December, it's like the best. Um, so you should come to Smith, and uh, you should come to the Alps. And if you have any other good ideas, I'd love to hear that too. So <laughs> let me know. Awesome. Well, Chris, I really enjoyed the presentation. It's all stuff that's totally outside of my my paradigm, and it's really fun to to see kind of a taste or see a rather a window into your world and i really appreciate you taking the time it's been tons of fun cool maybe you can explain to me how to boulder v10 sometime <laughs> <laughs> all right we'll uh we'll break open the whiskey and we'll we'll get to it okay thanks <laughs> thanks Chris. Like we do it.